The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 2nd of March 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme... Greece's government struggles to contain the political fallout from Tuesday's rail disaster. Also ahead, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz suggests that discussions are already afoot about how to protect a post-war Ukraine. We'll wrap up the latest business news with Ewan Potts at Bloomberg. And look, it's not like you have to put up with it every week. Just be a professional and get through it. Oh, I've read that out loud, haven't I? <laughs> Hello, Andrew. I'm sure you're going to love this. We're looking at the Togolese charts. From gospel to Afropop, it's all in there. On Fernando's Global Countdown, we're going to go to Togo. All that coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. In Greece, the political ramifications of Tuesday night's rail crash near Tempe appear to be escalating. At least 43 people are known to have been killed when a passenger service crashed head-on into a freight train. It is expected that the actual death toll will prove to be much higher. A station master from Larissa has been charged with manslaughter. An independent investigation has been promised. And Greece's transport minister, Kostas Karamanlis, has resigned but protests have nevertheless taken place across the country. Well, I'm joined with more by Lydia Manolidou, a journalist based in Athens. Um, Lydia, first of all, the protests, how big have they been? Yeah, they've, they've been quite big. As you said, uh, the, the, we saw various protests uh, around Greece yesterday, but there were two big ones in the Greek capital in Athens and then in uh, in uh, Thessaloniki, the second largest city in Greece. Um, it, it, the, the second one I mentioned, Thessaloniki, there was a vigil and a march from the Thessaloniki rail station where, you know, this passenger train and the people in it who were supposed to arrive Tuesday e- evening, uh, but, but never did. Uh, and then there was another one in, in Athens that got quite violent. Police used um, tear gas on on demonstrators, uh, and so people are, you know, are as you as you said, very very angry uh, over what has happened over the the past couple of days, and and over the government's response to the tragedy. Has this become one of those things? And this is not to belittle the incident itself, which is obviously a, a dreadful, dreadful tragedy, but which has become a touchstone for wider discontent. 
Uh, I think so. I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, we've been hearing a lot about today and really over the past uh, 24 hours in Greece is, uh, is is who who is at fault, right? And there has been a, a a rail station manager in the city of Larissa, which is near was near the site of the crash, who was arrested. Uh, the Greek prime minister came out yesterday uh, in a in a pre-recorded statement and said that this this tragic event was mostly to blame on human error. So the error of this uh, manager who was supposed to switch the the tracks and apparently he did not. And this caused the two trains to, you know, head towards each other on the same track and and collide. Uh, But there are, you know, there are uh, railway workers unions and journalists and critics who have been saying for years that actually the issues, you know, you cannot just pin pin the issues on, on, on a single person, but but there are systemic chronic issues with the railway system in Greece. There are staff shortages, there are outdated systems. And this is partly because uh, of the privatization, these these people say, of the railway system in Greece over the past uh, few years. And so there's a bit of, uh, you know, he said, she said, rightfully, people are very angry. There are still many uh, family members of people who, who, are, uh, who are unaccounted for, who have no uh, idea. I mean, I, I think they can assume that the, the people have, you know, have, have died. Uh, but the, people are rightfully angry, and and pe- still people do not know where their loved ones are, whether they're uh, alive or dead, and and whether they'll get to you know have a last moment with them. I mean, the protests, as you are saying, are, are clearly very angry, and we may be at the early stages of a response like this, where what people want to do is express their anger. But what sense do you get about why the measures already implemented haven't been enough? And we've discussed a few of them. The Prime Minister has promised an independent investigation. Somebody has been arrested pending charges of manslaughter and the Transport Minister has resigned. Is there any any response that is going to be uh, absorbed by the Greek public as adequate? Uh, I think, um, you know, what I've heard from people and some of the people who have gone out to protest is that uh, there's a feeling that, you know, the, the government is doing a lot of finger pointing and not admitting uh, some of the the wrong some of the responsibility that it has to reform the railway system to make it safer uh, as I mentioned there there have been rail workers unions who have been flagging issues with staff shortages with outdated equipment for many many years in fact uh, just last month uh, I think was the most recent statement that they put out warning of a potential you know incident of the of the type that we that we ended up seeing seeing this week and so I think uh, the the people will want uh, a lot of people that I've spoken to want to see the government take a bit more responsibility and want to see the government reforming uh, reforming the the system to make it safer for for people who are using it. And of course, I mean, you know, this this some of these issues that I've talked about they predate the current administration, right? They go back years, if not decades. Uh, but uh, I think people are frustrated to see. Uh, t- t- Feel people feel that the government is not taking enough responsibility and is instead uh, pointing the fingers at you know a single person and and pinning this on human error when in reality it's actually a, a systemic chronic uh, issue that people have been warning about for many years. Um, just finally, from the unions especially who have been warning about those things, is there any suggestion that there are more accidents of this sort waiting to happen? That there are other trains whose safety is entirely contingent? Uh, on one person looking at the right switch at the right time? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. If something doesn't change, uh, doesn't change imminently, I, I think those uh, rail workers and those unions would say that another accident is doomed to happen. Um, and this has to do not just, you know, with the trains themselves, but the uh, the, the the track signaling and control systems uh, that Greece has. From what we understand, and this will become clear in the coming days, but from what we understand now, um, some of those systems that are, are supposed to be used to monitor where trains are going in real time to give warnings when something like, uh, you know, two trains being on the same track happens. Those systems were not active or were not used properly uh, in this case. Uh, and so if that continues to, to happen, then, yeah, I think uh, we, we, we would expect another 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 incident. This is something, though, that the prime minister and other uh, politicians have said they will not allow to happen. They're, they've announced a, a committee that will that will investigate uh, and they have promise to, you know, address all the issues that that might come up as part of that investigation. Lydia Amanolidou, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing. Here is Monocle's Emma Searle with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Foreign ministers from the world's biggest economies are in Delhi for the second high-level meeting under India's G20 presidency. Delhi wants to use the platform to raise issues of the global south, but it is likely that the war in Ukraine will take centre stage at the talks. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has vowed to strengthen state control over agriculture and take a number of other steps to increase grain production, state media reports. A lack of adequate agricultural infrastructure, machinery and supplies have made North Korea more vulnerable to natural disasters. While experts believe the food situation is the worst it has been under Kim's 11-year rule, they still say they see no signs of imminent famine or mass deaths. And scientists have discovered a new corridor in the Great Pyramid of Giza. The nine-metre-long corridor is behind the pyramid's main entrance, and experts believe it could lead to further findings. The find was made using modern technology, including scans and endoscopes, to peer inside the pyramid. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Emma. You are listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Now, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has revealed that Germany has begun discussions with Ukraine and other allies about what kind of security guarantees a post-war Ukraine will require. Scholz noted, however, that Russia appears to be a distance from willingness to engage on the subject. Speaking a year after Germany responded to Russia's attack on Ukraine by promising to become a serious military power again, what has become known as Scholz's Zeitenwende speech, Schultz also urged China not to become an accessory to Russia's rampage by supplying weapons. I'm joined by Stephen DL, Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor. Um, Stephen, first of all, what does it tell us that Schultz is not suggesting what would seem the most obvious security guarantee, i.e. membership of NATO? It suggests that He's just stopping short of that because, of course, mm. he can't suggest membership of NATO. Um, it's been discussed. Kiev has asked for it. Uh, and NATO allies have, have nodded wisely and sagely and, and said, well, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, so it's ostensibly in the offing. Um, but it's something of a, I was going to say a fig leaf, but perhaps that's the wrong sort of leaf. It's, a, it's a, an olive branch to, <laughs> uh, to, to Kiev to say, well, look, you know, we're not going to bring you into NATO anytime soon, but once this war is over, we're not going to forget about you. And I think it's a it's an acknowledgement also of the reality of the situation that Europe now realizes that this is not just a spat between Russia and Ukraine. Um, this is 
I would say, already the Third World War because of the global impact of it anyway. Um, and the fact that a lot of Western countries are providing Ukraine with weaponry, including Germany, rather slowly, but um, now the tanks have gone, some of the first tanks have arrived. Uh, and so I think that, that there, he's he's trying to play the... The, the, not exactly the peace card, it's too early for that, but but showing Ukraine there is a future. And of course, it comes just ahead of his visit to Washington, where he's going to be grilled on this by Joe Biden. Well, indeed, but a, a post-war non-NATO security architecture for Ukraine is probably still going to involve foreign troops on Ukrainian so- soil. And, and there is a precedent for that. A few years ago, I did myself spend time with the, at the time, Canadian-led mission uh, that was training Ukrainian troops. Oh, yeah. And I think that really what uh, Ukraine might get when the war is over is something short of NATO membership. In other words, short of having Article 5. And mm-hmm. Article 5 meaning, of course, that when one, if one member is attacked, it's an attack on the whole alliance. Um, so if, if, it is as, if he is talking about going as far as that, then, then that's, this is very significant. But he still, his language is a bit woolly. I mean, the, the translation says that um, such security guarantees, however, come with the presumption that Ukraine successfully dis- defends itself in this war. Well, it's already getting Western help to do that. Um, and it's, it's also on the assumption, of course, that all Russian troops would be forced out of Ukraine, including Crimea, because otherwise Crimea becomes something of a frozen conflict and any country that has a frozen conflict, in other words, some sort of conflict which hasn't been resolved on its territory, cannot join NATO. Well, indeed not. Um, Another subtext of the Chancellor's speech I did want to ask you about was his warning China off is is an unfair, I think, assessment of it. And it has been reported as such. It was more a request slash urge to China not to involve itself in Russia's folly by supplying it with weapons. How, How seriously is China likely to take that? China won't necessarily take that one on its own that seriously. I think um, they're more concerned in Beijing about the fact that the Americans have been really talking up in recent times that their supposed intelligence that China is about to sell or give uh, weapons to Russia. Uh, that, of course, would be a complete change of China's, Chinese behavior over the last year. Um, China has denied that they're going to do that. Um, China's it, been more in the offering all support short of actual help. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Short of actually certainly military help, um, <laughs> buying a bit more oil and, and, and gas and, and um, saying remaining neutral at the UN, for example. But it's that remaining neutral, which makes me think that my guess would be that the Americans have been rather talking this up in order to highlight it to stop to make sure China doesn't do it. I don't think China wants to get involved to the extent of giving Uh, military aid to Russia, because if it does, it runs the risk of querying its pitch with with the whole world in terms of its economy. You know, China, I think from the start, uh, I felt that China, for China, the most important thing is its its global markets. And why should they um, spoil those, ruin those, perhaps, for, for the sake of Russia. Um, th- this great talk about China and Russia being great friends is, is, is all a show. Um, Putin is a very junior partner when it comes to, to dealing with the Chinese. But a much more junior partner, Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus, nevertheless had the red carpet kicked out for him in Beijing this week. I didn't get the impression, and you can tell just from the photos of Xi Jinping and Alexander Lukashenko, that it was a, a terribly equal exchange of views. I get the impression Lukashenko did a lot of listening. Um, But what do you suspect Xi Jinping was telling him? 
I expect he was telling him that um, you know that that we we uh, understand what's happening in Ukraine. Um, we understand that uh, you know your country, you're also a neighbour, and uh, you know if you were to be attacked, because this is something that Lukashenko has raised recently. That if if we were to be attacked by Ukraine, we would we would fight back with all force. Um, I, I, it was definitely a meeting that uh, was in favourable, more favourable for Lukashenko than it was for Xi Jinping. But they did both sign up to, or at least issue, a, a call for peace. What do we divine from that? I mean, Lukashenko, I get the impression, just wants all of this to stop so he can go back to presiding over his, his strange little hermit kingdom and being left alone by the rest of the world, by Russia in particular. Well, Lukashenko felt that he got a bit of kudos um, after the seizure of Crimea and invasion of eastern Ukraine in 2014 when he hosted what became known as the Minsk Agreements. Um, I, I say that in inverted commas because, of course, they were pretty meaningless. Uh, but he did, you know, he, he did host these, these meetings. They came out with these supposed Minsk I, Minsk, Minsk II agreements. Um, he, he would, yeah, he would love it to all stop. I mean, he's being, you know, he's under pressure from from Putin, undoubtedly, um, and in many ways, people think Putin is the one who's keeping him in power. Uh, when there were the big demonstrations in Belarus a couple of years ago, which were put down brutally, um, it, it is pretty well known that the, the hand of Russia was behind that, um, because a revolution, another revolution, as there was in Ukraine, another revolution in Belarus on Russia's border would have sent. Putin completely doolally. Um, so he's he, he's playing a, a, a game, where, and I think you're absolutely right. Where he thinks, if all this would stop, that would that would just be fine. That would that would suit me very well. Uh, just finally and briefly, uh, a study released this week by CSIS and conforming with a lot of other estimates of Russian casualties suggests that after a year of war, somewhere between sixty and 70,000 uh, Russian soldiers are dead or missing. Now, that obviously exceeds not only the United States in Vietnam period, but the Red Army in Afghanistan period, and actually, by in the latter case, by an order of magnitude. As far as you're able to tell, knowing Russia as well as you do, how long is that sustainable for Putin on the domestic front? Not as long as many people might think. Um, they're talking about, for example, um, Russia has been putting an awful lot of effort into seizing the town of Bakhmut mm -hmm. uh, in eastern Ukraine. But we know they have had huge losses. Um, and the more losses come back, there are bits and pieces now coming coming out of out of Russia, um, sh suggesting that um, I think it was in the the uh, Krasnoyarsk region in Siberia that people were saying soldiers who'd returned were saying, "Well, we're not going back there. You know, we've done our bit." Um, and indeed, their their relatives were saying, "Well, we're not going to let you go either." The more that happens, and the more people say, "Well," Where are the body bags? You know, where what's happened to my son? And there's we, we've another report this week said there's at least fifteen hundred cases of soldiers who've completely disappeared, missing in action, um, assumed dead, but no body there, no body returned. Um, th that this this is all I think is this 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 sort of is a, a creeping uh, wound for Putin. That um, the more people in Russia who feel that this the you know the war is affecting them the worse it becomes for him. It was very interesting, you know, he followed the State of the Nation address last week with, with this big interview on, on Russian television at the weekend, saying basically the same things. He's got to talk it up because more and more people are seeing that the reality is very different. And of course, it's all gone horribly wrong from what he expected a year ago. Stephen Diel, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. The Concierge from Monocle brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms.
Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. It's time now for an update on the day's business news. I am joined by Ewan Potts at Bloomberg. Uh, Ewan, some bad news for the City of London? Andrew, yeah, Arm is a jewel in the crown of the UK tech industry. You may not have heard of the company, but it, it is an enormous chip designer. Its uh, products are found in most of the world's smartphones, and it is pervasive across the electronics industry. The company is and will remain based in Cambridge. This is not a bad story for UK PLC, but today it has said that it will not list its shares in London. Now, this is pretty bad news for the city of london and it's also rather awkward for the government it'd been lobbying for arm to have an ipo to list its shares on the london stock exchange but uh, the group has said today that it is going to go to new york to do that now one of the key reasons that companies do this is that valuations particularly with tech stocks do tend to be much higher in america and that is proving a real drain from london's market and it is really something of a blow for London's status as the global financial hub. Uh, that is not in question. But when it comes uh, to stock trading, London's uh, has certainly been waning over recent uh, years. Just uh, last year, London accounted for only 9% of European IPOs, European listings by value. That was the lowest share in at least 14 years. So this is uh, uh, quite a bad uh, story for the City of London. I mean, that decline generally, Ewan, is that all part of the exciting Brexit dividend? Well, there is uh, certainly, it is worth mentioning uh, the B word. Uh, a lot of uh, trading of European shares has moved across to the other side of uh, the English Channel. Uh, and certainly Brexit has been challenging for financial services. I mean, London is still the world's number two financial hub and it is not being challenged for that by anywhere else in Europe but jobs some jobs and some trading has moved to uh, other parts of Europe with uh, Dublin and Paris and Frankfurt particularly uh, picking up a few bits and pieces but London is still a hugely important global financial centre but certainly when it comes to listings of shares it has not been doing that well recently. Uh, and moving along do we have Possibly not the first instance of Elon Musk over-promising and under-delivering. Oh, you cynic. Well, Tesla's, <laughs> Tesla's stock does tend to do well when the electric car maker is growing gangbusters and Elon Musk is thrilling its fans about a brighter future. Well, that didn't really happen uh, yesterday. Tesla's uh, latest master plan has fallen rather flat with shares selling off yesterday. Uh, Elon Musk gave scant details about what investors were hoping for, which is the next generation of car models that will underpin its next phase of growth. 
We had almost four hours of presentations from Musk and his team. They were long on calculations of what the uh, sustainable energy, energy transition will require, uh, along with boasts about manufacturing and engineering efficiencies. From what I read, some quite interesting stuff, but it wasn't what investors were hoping for, which was, as I say, more details on some flashy new car models, perhaps more mainstream car models, which will be cheaper and boost Tesla's uh, sales. Now, anticipation of the event uh, contributed to a surge in the stock, which has added uh, some $300 billion of market value in the past two months. Tesla shares were at a two-year low back in January, so they've really been uh, uh, climbing very, very rapidly. But uh, investors rather disappointed uh, what they heard yesterday. Uh, for Elon Musk himself, of course, that uh, big jump in the stock price will mean that he has again become the world's richest man. So a disappointing day for Elon Musk, but uh, there are other things uh, he can console himself with. Ewan Pott at Bloomberg, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24, and I always forget whenever asked to do Thursday's briefing that I'm going to have to put myself, and indeed the listeners, through Fernando Augusto Pacheco's global countdown. Fernando, welcome. Where are we going today? Well, because it's been a while since we've done those, I decided to choose a country that I never actually did on the global countdown, and they're becoming rarer and rarer, I have to say. It's Togo. Togo. A, yeah. a, a country, I will confess, about which I know not a great deal. It is in West Africa, I know that much, and I know the name of its capital city, but that's only because you asked me about an hour ago, and I said, I've got no idea, and you told me. It's it's low mass. So, shall we have a look? What are they dancing, actually? Uh, you yeah. know, I say dancing. Maybe there are tragic ballads here as well. <laughs> we never know. We never know. Uh, but at number five, this is a pan-African hit. Uh, she was born in Benin, but she's Nigerian, really. From She was born out of uh, Nigerian parents. It's Iris Star with Rush. Let's have a listen. You dance like broccoli, steady green like broccoli. Standing on my grind, oh yeah, what they want telling me? Could you not my fantasy? They want to check if my dad in no rush. But in a rush, in a rush, by the way, it be much. Now go to make my dad in a rush. The kind money we touch. Iris Star there. That's doing numbers all over Africa. Oh, yes. I mean, more than 102 million views on YouTube as well. And you know what, Andrew? I feel that Nigerian beats, they are being exported to Europe, to the US. They're becoming so influential these days. We, we have been talking a fair bit about Nigeria mm. on our shows across the last couple of weeks due to their presidential election. We did a whole thing on it on the Foreign Desk. And the, and the more you talk about Nigeria and the more you read about Nigeria, the less you understand why Nigeria is not already an enormous economic and cultural powerhouse. It is huge um, and colossally important. And yeah, I would be unsurprised if we begin to hear more of it. And for the record, I I did not violently object to that track. See, I knew that. I, knew, mm. I, I have a feeling that you might enjoy, actually, the, okay. the Togolese charts. Well, I'm, I'm strapped in now. Let's go. What's at number four? <laughs> number four is an interesting one. We're staying, actually, in Nigeria. Uh, he actually performed at the World Cup last year, so it's another big name uh, there. Although this is a romantic song, the name of the track, I don't know why is it called like this. Mm -hmm. uh, so his name is Kiss Daniel, uh, featuring Empire. The song is called Cough. Let's have a listen. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I want to carry my love away To a place she loves But I, I saw the lyrics. It's about, you know, loving his wo woman. You know, there's nothing about cough. I mean, at some point he does this in the song, like, <clears throat> so maybe it's not quite a cough. It's just a, a, a nervous throat clearing before exactly. he unburdens himself of his devotional. <laughs> but it would be a terrible name if it's called nervous, you know, uh, clearing. It, it, it is It is very hard to cough and look or sound smooth while doing it. And some uh, little trivia about Kiss Daniel as well. He's father of triplets. Is he really? Yeah. Yes, it's quite rare. Imagine. Uh, I, I, can't, I, I cannot even begin to. Well, one must therefore hope that that is also doing numbers, that track. He's going to need the royalties. Exactly. Oh, yes. Uh, and at number three. Uh, well, finally, we have a Togolese artist. And it's interesting because as we're talking here, Togo is a fairly small country. Mm -hmm. And sometimes some countries, you know, all the artists, there are from outside the country. But actually, they have a very strong music scene there. Uh, and this track has been defined as, according to the singer, as an anthem of the hustlers. Okay. Uh, and I'll explain after why. This is Cephalo and Willy Baby with I Believe. Avant de quitter, je vais donner mon best. Même sans jouer jusqu'au bout, parce que je ne sais pas quand est-ce que s'arrête mon cœur. Lorsqu'on a personne, la vie c'est l'enfer. Rien ne motive, parce que le fruit du travail bien accompli. La vie que je mène me fait prendre de l'estime. Je me débrouille mieux que tous ces héritiers. That's, I believe, not to be confused with the Righteous Brothers or R.E.M. songs exactly. of the same title. Young fellow there has a lot to say. Oh, yes. And this is a message of hope for those in a difficult financial situation. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the video, because there's a beautiful Ferrari there, and I wonder if it's an aspirational song, you know. So, you know, don't worry if you're struggling a little bit perhaps one day you're going to get your Ferrari. Do you reckon number three in Togo buys you a Ferrari? I, I'm, I'm doubtful, to be honest. I mean, that's that might be difficult. He doesn't have actually the numbers of Iris Star or, or Kiss Daniel, but that might change uh, after uh, the exposure you, to the global countdown. <laughs> are you doubting, Fernando, that it is in fact his Ferrari in the video? It might not be, actually. I should, yeah. I should do some research on you that, should, You really should have looked that one up, Fernando. Yes. I'm, I'm deducting points for that. Uh, at number two. Uh, well, in Togo as well, gospel. They love gospel music. And you know what? Some gospel is very nice. I don't and mind some gospel myself. Absolutely. And even the name of this track is by Centrinus Raphael. It's called Leminance or Eminence. It's about family love. I quite enjoy the jazzy beats as well. Let's have a listen. <laughs> I don't say this often in this slot, but I outright liked that track. Me too. I mean, that that's it's it's got that gospel thing with that but wedded to that kind of, I guess, languid West African sound that we have discussed a few times before. That is that is not bad at all. I agree with you 100%. And if you want a little bit more of that, Andrew, we have number one. And besides everything you said, the amazing kind of beat from West Africa as well, I have to say they look incredibly chic. I might 
coined then the term gospel chic because it sang in a church and they look amazing. You, they, you genuinely should come to the Methodist church at the end of my street here in London, which I believe has a largely West African congregation. Uh, on the rare occasions I'm up early enough on Sunday morning to see them come or go, it is a treat. They look fantastic. You know what? I might take the offer, Andrew. But first, this very stylish song by the Togolese group Tufang, C'est pas normal, it's not normal. Flash, cash, spend money Mangez la vie, il y a pas souci Bessi, hold the man Signez le chèque, j'aime à tous les mains Arguably somewhat frenetic for my particular yes. tastes. I like the number two track better. Well, I do like this one because, you know, you can pray to God but dance at the same time. I love it. You're doing two well, things multi- at the same multitasking. time. Multitasking. Multitasking. I love multitasking. So. <laughs> Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you as always for the Global Countdown. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Marcus Hippie. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamanchuan and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing returns at the same time tomorrow, midday London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.